Hey, would you like us to read a story of your choosing? Well, you're in luck. Head on over to superhumanregistrationpodcast.com and fill out the web form at the Contact Us link. If you submit a story there that is available to read on Marvel Unlimited, we will consider it for a future episode of the show. The world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. You know what does bum me out is, uh... Books go out of print, man. Like, that sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. Graphic novels especially uh, go out of print a lot. I remember looking... This probably would have been about three, four years ago. It was around the time that I was listening to a lot of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. Mm. And I listened to them talk about the Demon Bear saga. Yeah, New Mutants. Really wanted to check it out. Could not find it in print. They did recently reprint it, and I have... Did I read it in print, or did I wind up... I think I just read it on the app. Does it live up to the description on... Uh... On Jay and Miles? Um, it's... It's worth reading for the artwork, I think. Okay, that's that's Bill kind Zinkevich of the feeling I got. Yeah. Is brilliant, and that book has some genuinely like wild images. But the fact that you have a couple of characters who like disappear into the void and then come back and like they went into the void and they were you know white and they come back out and now they're Native American. That's weird. Ah, that's a thing that happens and it's weird. Huh. Like, what, Danny Moonstar? Was she not Native American the whole time? Oh, Danny, it's not Danny Moonstar. Oh. It's it's just two random side characters that, like, show up in the story. It's, like, a police officer and the nurse who is taking care of Danny after she gets attacked by the demon bear. Uh-huh. And they, like, disappear into this, this like, other dimension where the demon bear comes from. And when they come back out, they're Native American now. Oof. Weird. <laughs> it's, it's, like cultural appropriation except in soviet russia culture appropriates you oh jeez <laughs> it was weird and i didn't like it but the art is really good <laughs> but that's not the the x-men or x-men adjacent story that we're here to discuss today we've got a couple other of those on the slot uh are we ready to just dive in yeah 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 let's yeah. do it then let's fill up the franco this and let's just jump into it I have no idea what you're talking about. Welcome, everybody, to the Superhuman Registration Podcast, a show where we read, rank, and review a whole ton of Marvel comics. John, Aldo, welcome. Hello. Hello. And I am, of course, Stephen. Uh, I'm anticipating an interesting discussion today. We've got one rather momentous story to talk about, and then we got a little bit of a, a filler issue on the side that we'll kind of use as our, I guess, after-dinner mint. Uh, I'm actually really excited for this conversation. These are some interesting books. The big one, of course, uh, in honor of the movie that is coming out when you listen to this this week. Assuming you listen to this episode when it comes out, we're reading the Dark Phoenix Saga. So this is a story from Uncanny X-Men, numbers 129 through 137. Quite the monumental story. Very, very famous. Very, very influential, notorious. 
and I think it's fallen to John to try to summarize this. Hold on. Before John starts, would you say that this is the story of a girl who tried to burn the whole world? That's all I have. How how long have you been waiting to do that? Uh, I don't know, probably about a day and a half. (laughs) And and what did you you think the reaction was going to be on the podcast? Exactly what we got on the podcast. Okay, all right. All right. Glad this, we didn't disappoint. This is for me, John. I just okay. want you to know They're this whole podcast for is for me. <laughs> it's like when Homer's all by, he's at home by himself. Marge, you need to come home. Nobody can hear my various witty remarks. Yes. That's how I feel any night we're not recording. <laughs> all these jokes are just wasted. They're all so they're all gold. These plebeians don't understand me like my podcast comrades. <laughs> um man, to summarize like the the X-Men story, like this is this is like the big one. Um I love that we start off with we we get to meet Kitty Pride and Dazzler and we end up with a fight on the moon. By way of genocide and a, and a kinky um, underground eyes wide shut club, this book has everything, guys. Yeah, almost literally. Yeah. So the X Men are all back together after going on various missions. Um, at issue one hundred and one, I believe Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, became the Phoenix. She had sacrificed herself. Um, when a ship was losing power, kept the whole crew safe and, and telepathically was able to learn how to fly a plane to sacrifice herself and save everyone. But then that summoned this, the Phoenix force brought her back. She has this immense power. She saved the, uh, Shi'ar people, um, in a previous issue and other stuff has been going on. And so now they're all back and, um, the... In the last few issues, they're headed home to New York while this is going on. The last few issues, I guess for some time now, Jason Wingard, who we know is Mastermind, has been uh, like using his mutant power. Is he gaslighting? This is gaslighting, if anything is right. Like he's. I think it's more akin to brainwashing than gaslighting. Yeah, it is. It is much more. Yeah. So he he's putting Gene like in this fantasy world where they're married and they're going to the new world together. It's like. Back in the, what does he say, like 100 years, 200 years? Yeah, it's happened back in X-Men 125, 126. Um, Sorry, 200 years in the past. So like colonial America, thereabouts. And so she's having these visions, and that's what's going on. Um, They get back to the X-Mansion. Xavier's back and is trying to lead the team like they're kids. And Sto- or or Cyclops is like, we're not kids. You can't give Wolverine demerits. This is dumb. Cerebro goes off. They go to um, find Kitty Pride and Dazzler. They split up into teams. Um, all of the X-Men get uh, taken. Well, all the X-Men. Um, Wolverine and Colossus and Storm get taken prisoner. Kitty Pride escapes using her newfound powers. Meanwhile, Nightcrawler, Jean Grey, and uh, Cyclops are all um, at a disco. Which th- th- this is like the weird wrong note in the in the song for me is them going to a <laughs> disco. I mean, I think that's just like that's Dazzler's. Now, having said that, her her first shot where she appears is rad. Like. It's very of the age, and, like, all of her lines are dumb, and I, I don't like disco, whatever, but, like, 
that panel is really cool. Um, Jason Wingard is at this disco and just straight up kisses Jean Grey in public and Cyclops is just, what the heck? Um, but he's he's flipped the switch. Um, he's trying to move up in the Hellfire Club and um, that's going on behind the scenes and he makes her into the Black Queen and then uh, the Hellfire Club, using, using Phoenix... Um, is able to capture the X-Men, and, sorry, there's a lot to this book, <laughs> like, uh, Kitty Pride saves Wolverine and Colossus and Storm, and Dazzler helps, and they all regroup, but, um, since Jason Wingard has control over Jean Grey, she's able to, oh, I'm jumping ahead, I'm sorry, there's a lot of crap in this book. <laughs> like, you can jump ahead, I think we'll catch all the, the details in Basically, the Hellfire, the Hellfire Club uh, uh, takes the uh, X-Men hostage. Wolverine gets some cool fighting because um, he's the only one that's uh, kept... He's like down in the sewers and he's sneaking through and he's fighting and it's great. Uh, Jean Grey is totally in this illusion that Mastermind is concocted for her. They kidnap all the X-Men. Um, luckily, there's still a link between Jean Grey and Scott... Um, because he enters into her mind, kind of like Inception style, and challenges Mastermind to a duel, but since he's good at psychic battles, he whoops him. Um, and uh, Cyclops is killed within you know the mindscape and passes out in real life, and the issue ends, Cyclops is dead, and then immediately he gets back up. Um, Wolverine busts in at the same time as Jean Grey realizes kind of what's going on. She frees the X-Men. They all fight. Um, escape. Jean Grey uses her power to um, <clears throat> turn the tables on Wingard. He experiences a bit of her power and like goes catatonic. Um, and that's how she decides to punish him. Phoenix emerges. Dark Phoenix, that is. Whoops the X-Men, goes off into space, consumes a star which kills a planet of five billion people um, just f because she's getting her kicks using her powers. The Shi'ar are pissed that's part of their empire. She destroys one of their warships. They contact the X-Men. The X-Men and Jean all meet up in the blue area of the moon. Charles Xavier realizes they could challenge them to combat to kind of, um, you know, give her a chance of not being executed according to their laws. They have a fight. The X-Men put up a good fight, but eventually it comes down to Jean and uh, Cyclops. Jean decides to sacrifice herself, setting up a uh, old abandoned gun. That, uh, of all the things that could have killed her, she picks an old Kree or Shi'ar gun on the moon there to take her out. They take her out. And, uh, yeah, that's the Dark Phoenix saga. And <laughs> oh, there's there's so much here that we just like just danced over. But um, I'm gonna say first that I really like this better upon revisiting it than the first time I read it because I couldn't get past um, the soap opera feel of it. And you have to accept that there's that's an element of X Men. Um, Chris Claremont's way of describing every little thing it, it's. Somewhat a review I read, maybe it might have been Jay and Miles explain the X Men. That's a great podcast specifically about X Men. But they said that you know Chris Claremont, like it's like mixing the novelization with the the comic itself, all on the same page because he he's describing the action as it's happening. It's like we can see that. Just tell us what the dialogue is, or give us something in addition to what we can already see, or apart from what we can already see. Right? Um, mm -hmm. 
and just like the way he describes things is just like ah blah I, I'm also not a fan of the uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey and Cyclops whole romance it's like ugh bored but this is like the X-Men story so much of all of X-Men history ties back to this there was a lot of lead up to this I think it's um, John Byrne and Chris Claremont at the top of their game I like it and I mm-hmm. think the more I read it, the more I'm going to like it. Um, how'd you guys feel? I want to be quiet for the next hour. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> and to say it's fine is not a compliment. It was okay. Oh, wow. It was the most okay book I expected. <laughs> uh... I'm sorry, John. I, I, so, you know I don't like like Chris Claremont's style writing. Sure. Yeah. So that's already like a big point of entry, and like you said, like it's like I see what's happening, and I hate the big like group pages where it just feels like, oh, everybody has to say something. It's like being in a boardroom meeting. Like everybody has to throw in their opinion, that's and nobody's opinion is important or it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> like I get that you all got teleported, but I don't care. <laughs> um, and then like I don't know, the story for me just feels all over the dang place, man. Like we we're starting out like in two different cities, and then like, and then we're like in this in this weird like sex mansion, and then we're in outer space, and then it's a gladiator match, and then it's just like it it feels so much like it's flying by the seat of its pants. It it wasn't, but I I get where you're saying you know how it yeah. does jump around because it is pretty wild, you know the different spots we go to is I would you think that it might be fair to say it's just elevating the action. You know, you start off in the suburbs of Chicago and you end up on the moon. Like you gotta, you gotta top. You know. No, because issue. I, I don't think, I don't know. But at this point, the X Men have kind of been all over the place already. Uh-huh. So it doesn't really feel like it's elevated. It really feels like they just can't pick a place where they want the story to happen. And 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 I think my problem with this is probably it's been hyped up to me a lot. Um, there's been essays written about it. There's been think pieces. There's been two. Well, there's going to be two pretty terrible movies about it. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, so many people can tout this as, like, the Jean Grey story. So it's just been, you know, elevated to this status of, like, it's this amazing piece of work. And, and there's some really interesting stuff in there. Um, It's just, I don't think it's just as interesting as people think it is. And I don't think it's is as well done as, as a lot of people think it is. I think... It's probably one of the first big stories, but genuinely, I think this could use an update. Um, well, good news, because guess what? Well, they keep going to in the X Men stories. Uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. This this could use a good update. Um, <laughs> so this is the first time you've read this. Yes. Oh, interesting. I I know a lot about it because it comes up everywhere. Um, yeah. You can't you can't really read you know, more than five X-Men essays or, or or think pieces or lists without this kind of coming up and surfacing. Um, so I've absorbed it through, like, the social osmosis. Uh, and so I kind of expected this to be, like, you know, this really great, super amazing thing, and it just didn't feel like it. And I think in contrast to that, to me, it just feels fine. See... I wonder if part of that, I want, uh, my big thing is, I think sometimes when we see a story, you know, whether it's a film, it's a book, whatever, 
um, and we don't get the context as it was released. You know, when we've seen things that come after it that build on, like, the first of its... Cl- okay, uh, Blade Runner is my go-to example here, because I, everyone talks and raves about Blade Runner and how great it was and how groundbreaking and all this stuff, and I watched it and I wasn't really overwhelmed. I, I've since gone back, and I get it now. But the first time I saw it, the first time I saw, like, Wrath of Khan, the first time I saw, um, uh, what's the... Oh, crap. Annie Hall. Um... It, all of those things, they felt like things that I'd seen later, like I'd already seen, you know, movies that came after, like, better. Like, Annie Hall is, you know, it's a non-literary narrative about a breakup, and I was like, well, 500 Days of Summer was much, I liked that much more, but we wouldn't have, you know, I, I think that, you know, we wouldn't have one without the other kind of thing, you know, like, how many movies did Blade Runner inspire, you know, how, how big of a deal was Wrath of Khan when it came out, and now it's like, Boy, this is this is. Ooh, I mean, it's still still good on some level, but um, do you think, Aldo, that if if you had read this when it came out, I don't, I don't even know if there's a way to know that. Like, um, is this is this is part of the thing working against you liking this? The fact that you like different types of comics, uh, newer comics, or what do you think? I'm not saying one thing is right or wrong. I'm just wondering, like, if there's a if there's a way to enjoy this. Uh, I mean, I, there's I, a later. way... I, I feel like there's a way to enjoy this, and I think really it's... I feel like this is you like it or you don't. Um, uh. It's... I mean, here's the thing. It's it's fairly well done. I mean, like, the theatricality of it is really well done. I think some of the themes are that I wish would have gotten touched upon a little bit more. I wish they would have gotten touched a little bit more. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of really... You know, and Steven mentioned this. Um, I don't know if he mentioned that last podcast or just off podcast, but there's been a lot of, you know, great essays about, you know, female sexuality and empowerment from this. And I just, I don't know, reading this, I'm just like, maybe at the time, but even kind of trying to get myself in, a, in, in you know, in a mindscape where we don't have a lot of the stuff that we have now, I really, I, it feels like people are reaching a bit. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know. I, I Maybe I am missing something. Maybe uh, I'll need to revisit it in a year. But it just felt underwhelming for how much everybody clamors about it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't think it's the time or that it's been done better. I mean, it, uh, because it's like the Walt Simonson stuff, amazing. It holds up really well. Uh, you know... The original Stan Lee stuff also holds up really well. So I don't understand why, for me, this wouldn't hold up just as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think That's it's just, I just... I just don't think it's... I think it stumbles a lot. I think it's a little all over the place. I think it's not as deep as, as the people that read into it think it is. Which isn't to say that it's not deep, because there's been a lot of really great think pieces about john wick it's and it's a movie about a guy who goes shooty shooty gun gun in a russian nightclub um but you know movies with mikey made that whole thing a thing about you know uh the boogeyman taking down olympus so i i don't i don't know why i didn't quite jive with it uh it's just to me it just didn't really feel like it lived up Hmm. so if i may yes this is probably the third or fourth time that i've read dark phoenix Uh aha And I think this is a story that is definitely of its time. 
And I actually agree that there are parts of it that are clunky. I'm just kind of like flipping around through the story, and I happened upon the the last page of issue 130. Issue 130 is the one that has the great Dazzler cover. Dazzler's a character. We'll, we'll get to Dazzler. Uh, I, I don't think she's ever quite lived up to her visuals, uh, but I do think her visuals are interesting, and I really wish she was good. But anyway, there's this image on the very last page where Scott and Jean and Kurt and Dazzler are driving away from the disco club, and Scott sees Jason Wingard lighting a cigarette, and on the wall behind Wingard, you can see the silhouette of the Mastermind. Mastermind's an X-Men villain who's been around forever. He was, I think, first in, like, Uncanny X-Men number four, one of the founding members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He's been around for a long time. So his silhouette is actually really memorable, even though this particular version of him, the, the smooth guy with the curly hair and the wild facial hair. Mutton chops. Um, mutton <laughs> chops. Yeah. Uh, that guy we haven't seen, but we've seen the greasy, oily mastermind previously. And so, anyway, we've got this image of Jason Wingard lighting a cigarette, and we see the silhouette of the mastermind. There's no indication at this point in the story that that's literal. It just looks like the artist reminding the audience, oh yeah, you remember this guy? He's the bad guy. But then a couple of issues later, we find out that Cyclops thought he recognized the mastermind in Jason Wingard's shadow. And there are a couple of little things like that where there are like mini retcons, it feels like, throughout the story. And so I think on some level, yeah, this story was getting made up as it went along. But I also want to... to mentioned, John, you said that, of course, you got to accept that there's some soap opera when it comes to the X-Men. <laughs> to me, the soap opera stuff is what makes this a coherent story. Yeah. Because like, like Aldo says, yes. they're jumping from set piece to set piece to set piece, and there's the narrative line that's pulling it through doesn't really feel connected. Like, this isn't right. I, I don't think, at least, this is rising action, rising action, rising action, climax. This is more like serialized set piece, serialized set piece, serialized set piece, cliffhanger season finale. Well, it is, you know, we have to re- realize we're reading periodicals, and so it has to oh, be yeah, that way. Absolutely. You gotta, like, and, and every comic is someone's first comic, and so that there has to be a bit of a recap, which really bugs me, and I'm glad they do a page now in, um, you know, bringing you up to speed so there's no wasted pages in the story doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, hey, by the way, this happened in the last issue, let's go. Yeah, but, I mean, you look at the, the emotional through line. What are the characters actually going through right here? That's the You've good got, stuff in here. That's not just is, is it the good stuff. It's some of the best X-Men stuff I think I've ever read. And I and I will concede that. While the overall plot, I, I just could not find myself caring. I could not find myself... I could... I, <laughs> sorry, I'm like repeating myself. I couldn't care about the black, uh, like the black queen. This, this whole thing with the uh, what is it called again? The Hellfire Club. Yeah, the Hellfire Club. Like I really couldn't care. I mean, that's how much I, I forgot. But this whole thing between, like specifically, this whole thing between Scott and Jean Grey, like that stuff was good. Like really good. Like this whole thing about them having. You know, the psychic bond where they've implanted a piece of themselves in the others. 
uh, Scott kind of, you know, asking Jean Grey to, to you know, be in control and, and her kind of having to make this terrible decision. Him being able to sense that, you know, just something's not right on a deeper level than, than just a lot of this stuff. Like, that stuff's really good. Like, the emotional stuff in here is really good. And it's just... I just... Uh, the rest of the stuff just doesn't hold up as well. Yeah. Most of my favorite stuff in the Dark Phoenix saga is Scott Summers stuff. And that's interesting for me to say. Like, is anybody on this podcast a fan of Cyclops? Yes. Um, I am in, in little bits and pieces. I, I acknowledge that he's, you know, a, a, like one of the biggest parts of this book. And I like him when he's like mutant revolutionary in uh, all new X-Men, like that yes. kind of stuff. Oh, that's my favorite Scott Summers. Yeah. Like post... post um, AVX, you know, when he's part of the the Phoenix, like the that there you go, Phoenix comes back, and um, you know he gets it and goes mad with power, and then realizes like he he becomes basically who Magneto is back in the original, right. like yeah, and is interesting. That era of Cyclops, I don't know. This is my favorite version of Cyclops, the one that happens right around you know X Men one thirty. Like, a couple of stories before this one, and this one. But the thing that's interesting about this story is that this is the story... The Dark Phoenix Saga is the story that breaks Cyclops. Cyclops is a really talented leader at this time. And he's got a good thing going on with Jean Grey. The team that he works with is listening to him and following his instructions. But then Professor X comes back into the scene and starts making Cyclops second-guess everything that he's doing. Cyclops starts to sense that his relationship with Gene is on rocky ground because Gene is going off in a really weird direction. Then the whole Dark Phoenix thing happens. The story ends with Jean Grey basically, you know, begging Cyclops to kill her multiple times, and he won't do it, and he won't do it, and he won't do it. But killing her is, at least in within the confine of this narrative, the right thing to do. And Cyclops couldn't do the right thing. He could not bring himself to kill the Phoenix. And the last image we get of Cyclops in the Dark Phoenix Saga, he is collapsed on the ground and bawling his eyes out. Well, eye. One eye. Cyclops. I mean, he has two eyes. Under the big (laughs) red eye. (laughs) But yeah, like, all of the Cyclops stuff I think is really good. This is the story that kind of ruins Cyclops going forward, but I think that's earned, you know? He starts to second-guess himself, he starts to doubt himself. From here, we go on into the Madeline Pryor stuff, where Cyclops has a baby with his dead wife's clone, and then his dead wife comes back, and he leaves his, you know, dead wife's clone for his dead wife, who is not dead. Oh, and except they weren't actually married, but he basically abandons his baby. And, like, Cyclops, after this, turns yeah. into kind of a jerk. But you kind of see how he got to that point, and this is, I think, just, it's such a good narrative for Cyclops. I also think the Jean Grey stuff is really good, um, if a little bit problematic by today's standards. And I think this is where we start to get into the the sexual liberation essays that, I don't know about you guys, I don't feel equipped to really talk about that stuff. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Same. I mean, I'm typically, uh, you know you know me, I'll, I'll typically mansplain feminism any day of the week. <laughs> but not today. <laughs> even, <Yeah>. even I have limits. <laughs> like, the best I can do with it is, um, 
So, Mastermind is kind of, for lack of a better word, seducing Jean Grey. I think, actually, I think seducing is a really good word for using it in the context of, like, the seduction community. The, the people who like to, could, like, they're interested in the sexual conquest. They're not really interested in the relationship aspect of things. So, Mastermind is seducing Jean Grey, and in so doing, Jean Grey is learning that she likes sex. And that is, there's a parallel between Jean Grey liking sex and Jean Grey coming into her own power. But that power drives her mad, and that's a bad thing. And so I think this story, like, was probably really, I don't know, the way it was, must have been received at the time was like, really about, like, sexual revolution and sexual liberation. But at the end of the story, this winds up being kind of a sex-negative yeah. story in a weird way. And there's uh, there's obviously, or likely, nuances and readings that I am completely missing, which is why I say I'm not really well-equipped to, to handle this discussion. But from my perspective, it doesn't seem like it has a consistent message. It's interesting that it at least explores these things. And it creates a really compelling tragedy but I don't think that the tragedy is what people are finding inspiring. So there's something there that I'm missing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, when I edit this, I take out all of the long silences, so nobody's going to know that there was like a 10-second pause there. Oh, that's part of the fun. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot to be said about the Hellfire Club, the treatment of women. Um, I Emma Frost, Has Emma Frost showed up before? Or is this... I believe this is Emma ah. Frost's first appearance. Oh, that's a whole thing. <laughs> oh, that did my girl dirty on this one. <laughs> I know. And to be fair, like, that's part... That's actually, you know, one of the few characters where it's part of her character, where she does that on purpose and kind of uses her sexuality. And she's a psychic, and so she can dress like that and see what people think about it and, and mess with them. And, yeah, um... It, uh, still still not good but I think she has a pantsuit in a couple later editions so there's you know it goes back and forth but I mean she wears she wears pants later and then like a you know like a more forward yeah. covering cape <laughs> you know the bare minimum when she's running a school for children actually she's running a school for children right now but yeah I mean yeah I mean, she still has to be fashionable John yeah okay there's a uh... There's a uh, there's a Jessica Jones book we should read later, um, but that comes up like she gets a visit from yeah. from Emma Frost and she's like she's like you're dressed like that she's like I'm working and she's like what <laughs> the streets and she's like don't slut shame me Jessica Jones and she's like I'm suit shaming you. <laughs> you know I'm just I'm gonna go ahead and say this since we are, like, not really talking about the sexual politics of the Dark Phoenix Saga, but I think that is such a big part of this story. I would just straight up recommend, if that's a topic that interests you and you want to hear people who have more, like, personal buy-in discuss that, just just go listen to the Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men episode where they talk about Dark Phoenix Saga. It's like episode 8. 
or so. It's pretty early on in their run. Really? Yeah. Really? It, they that get to early? it really quick because I went back and listened to it to prepare for this because they're really thorough. And I was like, I want to make sure that I'm like not missing something completely. Um, and we do get a, an introduction of a lot of characters that come back later yeah, on. Yeah, like Kitty Pride. Um, some. Th- Sorry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like Kitty Pride. Um, I was thinking more. Who immediately, immediately has a thing for Colossus. <laughs> Which I'm really sad. I like Colossus a lot. And he just is like, you know, a, a, he's just a hostage this whole time. He gets yeah. thrown around yeah. quite a bit. Um, Daniel Pierce shows up. Sebastian Shaw, of course. Um, Senator Kelly. Mastermind. Senator Kelly's first appearance is in this. We get... Oh, yeah. Oh, speaking of Jay and Miles, let me just jump in here. It's episodes 12 and 13. Two episodes, uh, 43 minutes and 39 minutes. It's actually a pretty quick listen between the two of them. I remember actually being really emotionally moved when uh, they talk about X-Men 137. They they are passionate about it and so anyway I would I would strongly recommend people go and listen to that because I I think they do a really yeah. good job of something and this I think out. that 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 show is good because it kind of gives you some of the some of the things that all those had a problem with I think might be alleviated when you kind of see it in context now part of that context is they hang out in Ireland with some leprechauns and so maybe it won't help um, you know <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> they do some bonkers stuff in X-Men uh, back in the day, and I mean, always, yeah. but, yeah. So so you guys mentioned Kitty Pride. Can I, can I, I really like the way Kitty Pride is portrayed in this story. Good, yeah, she's Dude, great. I love she's it. She's a kid. Like, I understand that John Byrne is kind of a controversial figure in comics nowadays. I don't know much about the controversy. What I do know is that I like the way Byrne draws generally, at least in these stories, like, I like the way he draws Storm with the kind of the, almost the cat eyes that she's got going on. I like the way he draws Wolverine as just this short, ugly, hairy gremlin. And I like the way he draws Kitty Pride with, like, Kitty's very slim, she's very tiny, and she's got these huge eyes. She looks like a little girl. And I think that really helps to solidify her character as... I mean, she's obviously not the point of view character that she would become later, the the really relatable teenage girl type that the X-Men stories love to go back to over and over again. But she is, like, immediately little girl, big world, in over her head, brave and terrified at the same time. Like, I really like the way that she's drawn yeah, here. Yeah, where she's not just, like, a smaller version of every female in a comic book that you usually get, you know, like, idealized mm-hmm. and all that. And it's in particular, uh, issue 129, the first issue in the run, page 14, where she goes out for ice cream with Storm and Wolverine and Colossus. And Wolverine just, like, goes off and he's looking at girly magazines, which is ridiculous. And, and you know, Colossus follows him so he can look over his shoulder. That bit's funny. <laughs> I love that it's a malt shop. It's like, wow, what era are we in? You know, It's a malt yeah. shop with penthouse. Again, what era are we in? Seriously. But this, this image of Kitty Pride eating ice cream and Storm with her big cat eyes at the top of the page, I find it really charming. Yeah. I really do. Um... I I, th- I wanted to talk about the art just because it's uh, it, I don't know it just feels iconic it's just you know it is an older style but I also think that like 
it's so well done. Like each each panel just is just you know well framed, well well composed. I really enjoy it throughout. Um, you know, we get some great Wolverine action in um, uh, one thirty three. I think it is. And, you know, he has his little dirty, hairy moment, and he just takes out all of these dudes. Um, I don't know. I just enjoyed the art throughout, and I think this is, this is you know, kind of the standard by which all other X-Men comics can be judged, you know, art-wise. And like you say, it certainly does get revi- revisited enough. Yeah, yeah. Grant Morrison does a riff on the Dark Phoenix when he's writing the book. We had AVX, which was a big Dark Phoenix thing. Jean Grey's whole deal is she dies and comes back and dies and comes back. That which, happened a couple which of times. Which was not Claremont's intent. And he was really upset when they brought her back because he was like, no, like, this was supposed to be a big thing. Like, you know, they were they were just going to depower her. And then Jim Shooter, the editor, said, look, she killed a planet of five billion people. You can't just deep Like, think about the actual ramifications of that kind of act. You can't just depower her. So she's got to die. And so they rewrote that to where she takes herself out. Which I think is one of the big problems going, let's, let's speak, you know, systemically about superhero comics, serialized storytelling. One of the big problems with these sorts of stories is is that they don't let characters face the real consequences for their actions very often. And it's those stories where they actually explore those consequences that are interesting. Like, um, despite all my discomfort for Civil War itself as a story, a lot of the stories that spun out from Civil War or took place around the same time as Civil War that were exploring the repercussions of the Superhuman Registration Act, great stuff. Iron Fist at that time is really, really good. Captain America at the time was excellent. Um, and, and so, like, this story, the stuff that I think is really interesting is, you know, Jean Grey coming to grips. Like, I, I, I've talked a lot about Cyclops' story arc, and I, I'm going to touch on it again here in a minute. But Jean Grey learning to accept responsibility for the fact that she lost control and so, so many people paid the price for that. And then she accepts that responsibility and essentially acts as her own executioner, which, yeah. yikes. Well, who else could? Like, scary. You know, when the, the, the power that she shows, it's scary. Right. Yeah. So within the realm of this, this particular fictional story, that makes a lot of sense. And then the stuff that's kind of interesting that stems from that, and I've never read anything that comes back after this, but, you know, we leave Cyclops in issue 137 lying on the ground of the moon crying. Issue 138 has him on the cover packing his bags and leaving. And I know, again, from listening to Jay and Miles, that Cyclops quits the X-Men. And it was originally Claremont's intention that Cyclops was going to be gone forever. This was him, like, getting Mm -hmm. more or less written out of the book. And that didn't happen, because they continued to explore him, and eventually he wound up coming back. And, yeah, the story continued to, to go on from there. But the intention was for Cyclops to deal with this trauma by moving on with his life. And I think that's an interesting element of superhero comics that never gets explored in a satisfying way because they always undo it. Like bringing Jean Grey back from the dead. Like bringing Cyclops back to the X-Men. Like, I don't know, countless other... Well, I'm looking at, you know, these characters. Jean Grey has died and has come back. Um, Cyclops, I think, and so has Nightcrawler, so has Colossus. I don't know about Storm. I would assume so, but I don't know. I actually don't Wolverine. think she has. Is she like the only one? 
Xavier has several times. Is Wolverine back? Because I know he's been dead for a while. Is he officially back, or is it still up in the air? Although, do you know? I, wait, who? Wolverine. Uh, he's, I think he's Because they've had, like, Old Man Logan, and they've had X-23 titles, where it's just, like, all new Wolverine, or just Wolverine, but it's X-23. Yeah, so, like, in the last couple of years, the big arc has been the search for Wolverine's corpse. And I think what's happening, if I remember, like, the last set of previews i was reading uh i think he's like fighting his way out of hell (laughs) if you're gonna do wolverine yeah again hold on i feel like that's the thing that's happened too like didn't jason aaron do something like that i mean hellboy did that oh fair but Um, (laughs) thor does it too oh also also before another quick thing that i actually bothered me quite it actually took me out of the book uh storm being regressed into a slave housewife. Ooh. That genuinely took me out of the book, and I was like, that, I don't know that that was ever aged okay. <laughs> like, <sighs> well, like, and, and it's not even, like, implied. She's straight up called, like, a slave, like, housekeeper or something like that. Yeah, and her name is Beauty, and, like, ugh. That, mm, yeah. I, I would say, like, 200 years in the past from when this took place, that would most likely be what this issue was. That doesn't make it okay. I'm just saying, like, that's, that's, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying it in a book about, you know, giant space phoenixes and metal men and, you know, beautiful alien ladies. Uh, do we have to make it so real? Fair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the 80s, did we have to make it so real? Yeah, I'm with you on this to some extent, although I don't know that it ruins the book for me, but it definitely, when I get to that moment, it's like, wait, um... It's, yeah, it it doesn't ruin the whole book. Like they don't really say that it's just, you know, Mastermind's view of, like, oh, I'll make all these X-Men look like this, and ha-ha, Storm, like, it's just straight up, yeah, like... Yeah, it, yeah. it, it just took me out of the book for that one moment when it happens... It, it, wait, it, I had, I think I had to do a double take because I was reading it and I was like, wait, did I, did I read that correctly? And it just felt like, uh, it was, a little, I don't know, I'm not going to say uncomfortable. It just didn't feel right. It's like, it's a big thing to do to arguably the best X-Men. Yeah. Like I didn't know about this or I didn't know this about myself until the past like three, four years as someone who has known the X-Men his entire life. Storm is my favorite X-Men. She's good. Storm is really good. Uh, like, I formed this opinion pretty much from reading the, the Greg Pak Storm solo series from a couple years ago. The fact that Storm doesn't constantly have a solo series makes no dang sense to me. <laughs> uh, she's, she's just that compelling a character. And so for this, you know, really amazing character to be turned into a slave for, like, five panels and then they don't do anything with it, I'm worried at this point I'm starting to criticize the story for not being what I want it to be rather yeah. than for being what it is. But still, like, slavery is such a big deal. And maybe, again, this might be us, you know, in 2019 with, you know, reparations are actually a part of the political conversation in a way that I don't think they've been, at least not in my lifetime. So we definitely talk about slavery a little bit differently than maybe they did in in 1980. And, but still, it's like, it threw me out of the story a little bit. And I had to kind of like, shake my head and, and dive back in. I think I think my problem with it is, 
it it kind of gets used. I, I'm not. I don't want to call it a gag because it's not a joke. Um, it's kind of meant like like John was saying. It's kind of meant to like it's the setting, except the problem is it doesn't feel like they're doing this, like maliciously or like it's not to emphasize that mastermind is, is such an evil guy that anytime he sees a black woman he sees her as a slave. It's not. They, they don't really talk about, you know, the depowerment of being essentially an elemental goddess from Africa being demoted to this. Like, it doesn't get used for anything more than, like, oh, yeah, they're in the George Washington times. This is what they would have been. And I yeah. think that's kind of my beef. Is I, I'm not saying, like, I'm totally against somebody making a story where it would reframe her in that sense if they worked the, the themes in that story well. Um, and in here, it just kind of feels like it gets thrown away, and it feels disrespectful to Storm. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of such a, a like it's such a sight. They gag. also chained her up in her underwear earlier, but you know, <laughs> I mean, everybody <laughs> that is at least some equality. I mean, did you get a did you get He's a good hairy. look at Colossus? Because that man can rock <laughs> a pair of briefs. No, the funniest thing in the world is like just after uh, AVX, there's some issues kind of catching you up on what has happened to like the Phoenix Five. You know, the um, I think it was Colossus, uh, Cyclops, Emma Frost, and who else took the power? I forget who else took it. Uh, jeez, I can't. Oh, yeah, Namor. Namor. I can't remember. I know that Spider-Man tricked two of them into fighting. I have them, like, in front of me, but, you know, in a long comic box under the desk. I don't want to dig through. Wait, are you, yeah. are you trying to name who the Phoenix Five were? Remember the acronym. What's the acronym? They're the Penis Five. <laughs> so, Namor, Scott, Iceman? No. They're not. How? Peter, no, that Peter Colossus, work. Peter Rasputin. E is... Uh, Emma, Emma Scott, or Emma, excuse me, Emma Frost, um, name. So it's, it's Emma Frost, Namor, Rasputin, uh, Namor, Scott Summers, Ileana Rasputin. Ah, yeah, 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 that's right. Steven, why, why have you made me see this? Hey, you'll remember them now. No, I'll remember penis. I'll remember the, the phoenix penis. Oh God! I mean, we probably can't. We probably can't use you that as the episode title, but I would like. I mean, we're not going to. Don't worry. <laughs> Fiery Phoenix penis. I can't. I can't. Now I'm. I'm gone. I can't. I can't. <laughs> there are great character moments in this. That we're just. We're, they're gone. Gone. They're just all gone. Yeah. Um. Who were we talking about that before we got home? Oh, I don't even this? know. Oh, no. I was talking about, I brought it up. I brought up the Phoenix Five because the um, <laughs> the comic that shows what Colossus has been up to, he grows a beard. He has a beard in his metal form, and it's the oh, coolest yeah. thing I've seen in comics. It's amazing. That's right. I I do want to say, though, I mean, and it, 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 like every time we have something great, we like rag on it for a while. We okay. Let's let's not throw that it's, we term around a lot. You two rag on stuff that is good, like Endgame. You guys gave that a lot of flack where it was not needed. Eh, I think it was needed. No, Thanos has a very impractical sword. I think I think the biggest I think the biggest movie of our lifetimes deserves to be questioned and not just accepted as immediately perfect without looking at what it's actually saying. I think I'm not saying fair. it's perfect, but like, man. I don't think we're going to see anything else like it, and uh, and I think it earned it. And you know, we're like days away from it passing friggin' Avatar, and I'm happy about that. 
You know what would have been great is if it had a better line than "Love You 3000. It's it's so. fine. It's cute. <laughs> it's the delivery that makes that line. It's a real I, like kids yeah, kids talk no. like that. I loved it. <laughs> I I guess I am not oh. a fan of children. Uh, <laughs> hey, weren't we talking about the Dark Phoenix saga? Oh yeah. What was like I was trying to say is you know <laughs> given regardless of all the complaints that I've had. Uh, with it not necessarily jiving with me, the story and the set pieces kind of being seemingly all over the place, and it feels like the actual plot of the story is flying by the seat of the pants, and I promise I'm getting to a compliment here. Um, man, like, and it, it, we stated this near the beginning, and I just want to reiterate, the emotional through line regarding Scott and, and Jean Grey is really great, and I think one of the things we've hardly, like, talked about is Jean Grey's relationship to everybody else. Because that really connects yeah. a lot of the characters yeah. in the story. Um, like, just, like, when she's the phoenix and, like, when it's kind of taking over her. Like, I really like that bit where she interrupts Scott and uh, an angel. And he just immediately is like, I can tell I'm not wanted here. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of these conversations between uh, Aurora calling her, like, a little sister and, like, trying to do her darndest to not... Attacker, attacker. You know, quick little reference to, I guess her having a thing for Wolverine at this time. There's a bit of that, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And so, like, there's. I think the the thing that's really wonderful in this book is the whole idea of how much one person is connected to everybody else, and and we don't see it in this book, with the exception of Scott. But you can tell. Well, but what I, was, what I was trying to say is that, with the exception of Scott, who kind of gets, like, his own big dramatic, I'm going to cry on the moon, um, you know, which he's earned, uh, mm-hmm. I wish we could have, at least in this book, I wish we could have seen a little bit more of everybody else really kind of being a little bit more broken about this. Yeah. What we do get is in issue 137, mm-hmm. which... I, I keep forgetting every time I read this that issue 137 is a giant-sized issue. It's yeah. 34 pages long. <laughs> oh, or yes. 35 pages long. And it feels it's, like it. It's 35 pages of Chris Claremont writing. The thing is, the writing in this issue is really good. It just is... There's just so much of it. Okay, okay. Uh, also, question. Yes. Uh, what does the Watcher's room have to do with this? I don't know. Does that, that set up does that set up something for something else later cuz it feels like that. It feels like it's supposed to set something up for Wolverine in particular. That doesn't come yeah. up in the solo series though. I don't know. The Watcher is just significant. Like if the Watcher shows up it's like set up everybody. This is going to be this is going to mean something, you know, in the Marvel universe. Right. Well, yeah. But but he does like no problem with the Watcher being in this story. I, like I actually think page 1 with the Watcher like doing the recap really yeah. sets the appropriate tone for this story. It's just in the middle of the story, Wolverine just whoopsie doodles, walks in on the watcher while he's taking a bath or whatever, and then he goes to dinosaur times for two panels, and then he pops back out on the other side, and that's it. You could take page 21 out of the story entirely and nothing changes. Yeah, that was a little weird. It's a little weird, I'll give you that. Yeah. But... As far as, like, the individual characters and their reaction to everything going on with Gene, we don't necessarily get their response to Gene's death, but we have this great section from page 8 through 
basically page 11 and 12, where every character is kind of, like, trying to decide whether they actually think it's worth it to stand by Jean's side, even though she lost control and killed so many people. Yeah. And that bit, I think, is really good. Oh, Angel has a really good line in that scene. Oh, Angel... Who, yeah. who sucks in general. Who Angel's just shows up like, hey, what's up, everybody? No, yeah. the moon! Oh, no. <laughs> now I'm fighting scrolls. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm no, going to read a... this line, I think, although, if that's okay. What? Go ahead. Yeah, it's page eight, I think, is what you're referring to. At the bottom bottom right of the page? Yep. Yeah. Angel is talking to Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler says, hey, you sound sad. And Angel says, perhaps it's because I've discovered doubts where I didn't expect to find any. In a few hours, we're supposed to fight Gene, or we're supposed to fight for Gene, and I don't know yet if I can. And that, Kurt, that hurts. Yeah. Is that the line? Yes, that's a good line. Yeah, Oof. it's pretty good. Yeah. And then we flip the page and we get, you know, full frontal Wolverine. Yeah. I mean, you say that like it's a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> Dude, Terry, not a fan. <laughs> I, I see you're more of an angel guy. Okay. No! <laughs> Storm, okay. flip the page, man. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. I think issue 137 as a whole is actually really solid. Um, and like, as, as disjointed as I think the rest of the story is, it's worth it because you need all of that context for issue 137 to have the impact that it needs to have. And that's, you know, not even talking about that iconic cover. It's, it's all the stuff inside, the internal conflict amid... Among the X-Men, the sort of intergalactic importance of this trial of combat, the fact that the X-Men lose this fight so soundly that it ends in tragedy, and that this is the bit that really gets me, is that at the very end, we get the Watcher, who says that the X-Men have won. This is their greatest victory. When they lost this fight, like that that adds just like the perfect bittersweet touch to this story. I I really love issue one thirty seven. I think it makes up like this is my opinion here, and we'll debate the merits of this opinion once we get to the rankings. I think issue one thirty seven more than makes up for the flaws of the rest of the story. Well that's a mighty bold statement. We'll get to that later. <laughs> I like when when it comes to the ranking when I'm on like the, the, the winning side, the two against one. It's it's gonna be nice for a change. It's almost like somebody's planning a portrayal here or something. <laughs> As I'm sneaking in the shadows with a little knife. All those like on a different text message to Steven, just like working the vote, you know, just like, hey man. <laughs> I'll support whatever whatever hey man, you know, hey. Thanos crap you got going on later, but <laughs> Like, listen, man, I know you don't have a PS4, <laughs> but would you like one? <laughs> John can die on this hill. We'll survive to fight another day. <laughs> that cinches it. Worse than worse than one more day. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> this is the real civil war. It goes <laughs> getting your teeth drilled with no Novocaine, a straight shot to the gonads, and then one more day. <laughs> Because there's emotional pain with one more day. (laughs) Yeah, that one hurts. Uh. Okay, um, is there anything else that we want to talk about with this story? I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. We haven't even talked about the fact that Beast just basically just, you know, clocks out from the Avengers and never goes back. Wouldn't you, you know, like, 
Patton Oswalt has a great bit about that. He actually is riffing on, well, he's talking about the miracles of Jesus and relating them to what if they were all a superpower. And he thought that, you know, turning fishes to loaves was more in keeping with weird oddball stuff that the Avengers superheroes can do as opposed to the X-Men because the X-Men were like the elite. He's like, yeah, you can go join the Avengers, Jesus. I mean, they got a guy with a bow and arrow, so, you know, whatever. Um, I guess 1980s Avengers versus 1980s X-Men. Yeah, there's a very clear distinction there. Um, I... I I enjoy this. I I think that it's it's worth rereading, and I think that that you know the good parts stick with you. Um, Chris Claremont wrote X Men for seventeen years. That's enough to yeah. get a child driving yeah. independently, or like through high school, or you know, like someone born when he started writing X Men, like you know, grew up. Yeah, like their whole yeah. That's just wild to me. Yeah, they they don't know. A world without Chris Claremont writing X. Yeah, I think it informed like my. All right, cards on the table. You know the X Men TV show from like the early '90s, good or bad, whatever. I like that's that's my like home base for X Men, and then everything off of that. It, everything else is informed by that, and so sometimes I have to like take a step back and be like, okay, this is how it was in the cartoon. That's not how it really is, you know. And I think this book helped, but it also like. I don't know. I think they did a good job of keeping some of the same relationships there. We're not going to talk about the movies because... Yeah, I was going to say, the, the, the X-Men cartoon, the 90s X-Men cartoon, have you rewatched the Dark Phoenix saga in the 90s X-Men cartoon recently? No, I don't, I'm afraid to. <laughs> Here's the thing. Given that the 90s X-Men cartoon suffers from some like shoddy animation, their adaptation of Dark Phoenix is actually pretty dang good. But they just de- they just depower her like, and I, they cut out the genocide, right? I don't remember if they completely cut out the genocide. Uh, well, she does blow up a star and I think they say something about luckily the planets were uninhabited, but what mm. happens next time? Um, and she doesn't die at the end of it. But like otherwise, they do a pretty decent job. And this might be nostalgia talking. It was that cartoon that instilled in me an understanding of the importance of this story and i think the cartoon does as well as it can for a cartoon that had you know such rigid censorship as superhero cartoons on fox in the mid 90s did there was a great is it um honest trailers it was like an homage to the 90s cartoon and it like points out the funny things that like were reoccurring tropes on the show and it's like anything wolverine yells it's not cursing but it's like you piece of gutter trash and it's just like he yells them so angrily and it's nonsense all like cobbled together to try to make it sound like really really bad salty language also, the supercut of people yelling Gene. Yeah, Gene! Because that was the thing. This did, like, you know, her becoming the Phoenix and then leading into this. Like, before, when, like, she was the first part of the team, like the um, Stan and Jack comics, she was just the damsel in distress, and she didn't have... She had... She didn't have telepathy. I think she had limited telekinesis, and she was always, like, unsure of herself, and part of her powers are blocked off by Xavier, and, oh, no, what's she going to do? And then she, you know, got to come into her own. So, um, you know, there's something... To her, I don't know. I don't know. This is also like a, oh, she's gone mad with power. Kill her, kill her. That's, a, that's problematic too, but. You know what is a, you know, it's a bit of a downer on this whole thing. Mm. Uh, Wolverine never actually kills anybody. Anybody, anybody? And it's really disappointing. He teases so Didn't much. Didn't he straight up stab some dudes in 133? 
Oh, yeah. Well, so 133, although, has some repercussions you might not be aware of. All of these guards that he's attacking, he doesn't... I mean, 133, page 3, he, like, slices some guy's chest open. Oh, okay. Yeah. All of these guys actually come back as the Reavers. Oh, okay. Because I was, uh... Because I was particularly hung up on, like, one... Like, a couple of frames. I forgot what issue it was. Um... Where he's like has claws out and he's like going at a guy, but then the next frame the claws are back in and he's just like choking him and I was like, "Ah, oh, Wolverine, you tease!" Oh, that's that's his dirty hairy moment. But he, <laughs> oh, yeah. he killed a hallway yeah. full of dudes before. It was like X two up in there, you know. It was one of those famous yeah. Marvel hallway fights. What's one more, man? <laughs> that's where he draws the line <laughs> between you know animal and, and and human or mutant. You know, he's got to pick it somewhere and. It's that last dude. Mariko doesn't care. She's dead. <laughs> no, she she's not yet. For she now. hasn't died at this point. She like I don't. She's not in the picture yet. Or like. Do you know John? Have you I touched mean, it? Yeah, I got it right here in front of man. Look at the look at a calendar. Oh 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 oh. Oh thanks. Okay. 1980, 1982. Like. Touche. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. Uh. The art is great. I just, it's iconic. It's, it's like, I love every panel, you know? Um, I don't, hold on, hold up. So, like, the, one of the covers where she's, like, like I think it's 137 or 130. It's like her, you know, it's like the dark feet. Her face Grabbing is, like, nuts. Like, I don't like the expression on her face, how that's yeah. done. And that pops up a couple of times in the comics. Sometimes when she's Dark Phoenix, her eyes go all white and she's cool. Other times she's, like, hey, like a feral dog kind of face. I don't like that so much. That's my only complaint. Eh, I like it. Mm. I find it charming. My my complaint with the art is it's really good. It's really well done. Really, I, I mean, everything you said earlier. Um, my only problem is there's a, lo- a lot of the time, a lot of the poses feel... St- uh, like that, like poses, like That's they don't fair. feel like they're in action, which is, which is you know, kind of on a per artist and even per decade basis, um, you know I think early eighties and and seventies really suffered from that, mm-hmm. um, but I mean how many books were they pumping out at the time and and you know yeah. how how much action is going on like geez, um, I can't I can't blame them for that I just sometimes to me I would read this and it's like. There's a lot of text here, and everything looks really stale. And uh, boy, I can't wait till somebody gets stabbed or something. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, some of the stuff like feels a little posy, but it it's fine. Like I really, uh, I I uh, I am really fond of a lot of the space moments, like when when she goes out and destroys the star. Like a lot of those sequences of her like in flight with like the fire and all that stuff. It's actually really well done. There's a reason the the Phoenix is so like iconic even to this day, and I think you can really trace that back to like how well done it's it's done in here. Um, and it's funny because like thinking about Avengers versus X Men, and this is I'll, mind you, this is all from memory. There's a lot of the times that I remember looking at the Phoenix, and in at least the mental image I have, really feels like they were emulating the like. The phoenix and the, the oh, yeah. way the fire is drawn in oh, these yeah. in this book. It's it's a huge callback. Yeah. It's it's interesting how mm-hmm. you know there's this there's tons of other stories. There's um, uh, House of M leads into um, Messiah Complex, Messiah War, Second Coming, uh, AVX, which leads into like 
uh, all new X-Men, like what we have now, like kind of, I, I mean, there's been probably a couple of things that have happened. AVX, but, yeah, you know. Well, and you know it goes the other direction too, like uh, Dark Phoenix leads into the Brood Saga, which leads into Inferno, which leads into Mutant Massacre. Yeah. I might have my timeline a little bit messed up there, but X-Men is, as far as that, you know, dealing with consequences thing, X-Men has tended to do it better than a lot mm-hmm. of other franchises. It just runs on so long that it runs, it has yeah. a soap opera problem. Brittany, my wife, has been watching this, uh, this telenovela, this periodic, uh, this uh, period telenovela on Netflix called Gran Hotel. I think uh, it's, it's relatively popular among the people who like Downton Abbey. And it's like funny because almost every day she comes up to me and is like, they killed this character, but she's back now. <laughs> You're like, preach. <laughs> yeah, and X-Men definitely runs afoul of that. But also, they... And I think they're helped out now by having such a large cast yeah. of characters that you get this sense of change, even though the same story beats get revisited over and over and over again, and the same characters keep coming back over and over and over again. You get to this point where you can have, like in the 90s, the blue team and the gold team running around fighting crime at the same time. You get to this point where you had like in the mid two thousands where there were about a dozen different X books and they all kind of dealt with a different factor or a different idea of what it's like to be a mutant yeah. in the Marvel universe. Um, and like, it's, it's both a strength and a weakness, I think. Yeah. I think when they use their history, well, it's really great. I love, love, love Second Coming, and you have um, Bastion, who's uh, an AI sentinel who's coming from the future. Possibly, well, I mean, the future. Every time someone comes back, like Bishop or whoever, to save them from, like you know, like Days of Future Past, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's you know, the future has always been bleak. The future has always been like, you know, mutants are extinct and sentinels have taken over and pretty much the whole world is wrecked. And then like the little details get changed or whatever. But then, you know, this time, like they've come back, they've, you know, reunited all the X-Men's and en- the X-Men enemies all gathered all the mutants together in one place because they're so depowered. There's only 198 of them and it's all down to hope summers. And, um, you know, the big, the big main X-Men and, and Namor for some reason, you know, they're all, um, caught together and it's, it's just, I really enjoy that story. I hope we get to it sometime, but, um, that I think is using, cause you know, we see some of these characters show up then, um, Donald Pierce, for example, Bolivar Trask pops up, um, you know, the Sentinels in mm-hmm. general, but, you know, using, using your history well, as opposed to it just being baggage for every single story and then, you know, a rehash of stuff that's been told before, you know, there, that is one way to write an X book. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking about Dark Phoenix for a long, long time now. I think we actually have to move on. I can hear Aldo cheering. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> So, we also want to talk about uh, what if one shot from 2018 what if magic this is sort of x-men adjacent this is a story about Ilyana rasputin this is an interesting story it's by uh some creators that i've never heard of uh written by lee williams art by philippe andrade uh colors by chris o'halloran and letterer is bc's clayton cowles yeah i don't know any of these people really although i do think i've heard philippe andrade's name before so this is a story that picks up 
basically right after Ileana Rasputin has been taken to limbo and raised to be a sorceress by the demon Belasco. She escapes in X-Men continuity. She stays with the new mutants and eventually her story arc culminates in the event Inferno. In this version of the story, rather than staying with Xavier's school, she runs away. She starts hitchhiking around the country. Uh, apparently, she develops a bit of a reputation for hurting or killing, potentially. I think it's implied that she's killing a bunch of uh, truck drivers. Based on the way that the story unfolds, these are predator. These are predators, and she's taking care of them so they don't hurt other people. This catches the attention of Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange basically kidnaps her and takes her to the Sanctum Sanctorum until he can learn what her whole deal is. He offers to teach her sorcery. She learns sorcery, and like when she finally gets to the point where she's mastering the ability to create stuff and not just destroy, which is kind of tapping into her her like good side as opposed to the evil side that Belasco cultivated. Belasco shows up and tries to take her back to Limbo. Belasco and Doctor Strange get in a fight. Doctor Strange defeats Belasco. Strange continues to teach Ileana sorcery, and eventually she becomes the Sorcerer Supreme. Like, she, that's, that's it's the story implied. in a nutshell. It, well, it's, yeah. She's being trained by Doctor Strange explicitly to become the next Sorcerer Supreme. And yeah. I guess we don't get that far into things. That's it. This is a 20-page story. That's what it's about. Well, I guess it's 20, 22 pages, but we got a double-page spread in there. Anyway... Relatively brief story, super straightforward, kind of interesting. What did you guys think of this? I really liked it, and I was sad that it was so short in comparison to, like, what I wanted it to be, you know? Ditto, uh, you, you, you voiced um, what I wanted hey. to say almost word for word. What? So, like, we're, we're going to agree on this. Like, I was frustrated because this didn't feel like a plot-driven story. The plot itself is kind of weak. Like, Belasco shows up on page 14, and he, like, has a sword pulled in front of Doctor Strange's neck, and you can see blood coming off it. So, bottom, like, last panel on page 14, Belasco is a threat. Top panel of page 15, Belasco is a threat. Second panel on page 15, Belasco is buried in the sand, and Doctor Strange is fine. Like, there's no actual tension to this story, but it still works. Because there's really good character stuff. The interactions between Strange and Ileana are yeah. great. I think Steven likes this because this is just, you know, a father adopting some estranged girl to be his daughter. But you know, I didn't think that's what it was, but you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> Cranky old man taking care of teenage girl is like that in superhero <laughs> comics studying religion. Those are my things. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I actually quite liked about this book that caught me by surprise was the art. Yes. The art yeah. was really solid. I re and the coloring I'm looking at, too, was really well done. It, yes. It, the art reminds me, like, especially some of these pages, like, when they're meditating and it's all wild geometric designs and everything, it reminded me of Steve, Di Steve Ditko. If you're going to do a strange story, you need to do it like Ditko. Yeah. At least when it comes to the art. Yeah. The, one, one of the things I, I liked about this was some of the character work, or, like, a, you know, the designs kind of felt like whoever you know like Felipe Andrade might have started out kind of emulating Scotty Young and eventually grew into his own because there's a lot of there's a lot of proportion work um but I'm specifically looking at the page when they're like 
on the little boulder, and they're sitting there, and they're surrounded by all these, like, creatures. Oh, and, my gosh. Yeah, that page yeah. is great. That's, that's, uh, what that. is that? That's page 20. Yeah. Second to last page in the book. Yeah, kind of, kind of the way that Doctor Strange and, and Ileana look, it kind of looks like somebody who, who kind of really likes, and I'm not saying entirely the, like, character design, but the line work, to me, feels really reminiscent of, like, Scotty Young. It's interesting that you hmm. say that, because when I've been reading this, like, I'm looking at page 13 when they go to that sort of, like, tropical island, and Doctor Strange in the middle, like, the panel dead center in the page, he's, like, lecturing Ileana, his mouth's wide open, he's got his finger up. I look at this, and I think, rather than of, like, Scotty Young, although you're going to get mad at me, I think of Frank Miller. I think of, like, Dark Knight Returns, and... <sighs> Yeah. What's that guy's name? Oh my gosh, what's his name? It's not David no, no, Mazzucchelli. No, no, no. It's the other guy that collaborates with Frank Miller a lot. Yeah. Oh. Uh, we, he did the Wolverine book, didn't he? That's Frank Miller. <laughs> he did the art, yeah. I know who you're talking about, and it makes me angry. Because um, I can never remember. Like, Jans something? Jan, Jan. Klaus Jansen. Klaus, Klaus Jansen. Jansen, yeah. Yeah. So I get a real, like, Miller Jansen vibe from this art. But, like, not in a bad way. I... Jeez, and that, just looking at that same page, the picture of Ileana, the panel just to the left of the one I was talking about, yeah. looks like Frank Miller. Yeah, yeah, that one does. I actually really like that panel right below the yelling stuff where she's like stretching or whatever. Oh, that yeah. stuff, that That's panel's really great. well done. I mean, I this is why sometimes I feel bad when I, I complain about the art, because I'm not a very good artist myself. I think I like, <laughs> to, I like to think I'm decent. I've drawn a thing or two once. Um, <laughs> but genuinely, like the... Perception, uh, is that perception? Death? Pers- no. Perspective? Perspective. The perspective work on that little, on that one drawing of just her kind of crouching down and like her hands are at a kind of at an odd angle, but like one of her legs is pointed straight at the camera. Like that's just really solid work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and splitting it across the panels like that, it just, it you know, it's different. I like, I like how they, they did that. Yeah. And the holes in the jeans. I don't know what it is about the holes in the jeans, but I think that is such a nice character design detail mm-hmm. for this character at this time. I'm not a fan of the belly shirt. I think belly shirts, well, frankly, I think they're kind of bad fashion and always <laughs> have been. But the holes in the jeans, I think, are really good. And I, I don't know why that's what I fixate on, but I just, I like it. It makes Ileana feel like a character who is living in this world and she's had a hard time and her clothes are are worn out and ragged but they're the clothes that she has so she continues to use them and there's also an element of you know her being a teenage girl in the 80s and maybe it's a little trendy 80 yeah i don't know like i i do think it's a great touch steven has a problem with belly shirts because he has a pierced belly button and wants it to be his secret all the time uh-huh. yes yeah. exactly a belly shirt it. would just give it away it's definitely not because i've gained a bunch of weight and my shirts don't fit anymore <laughs> you, can't, you can't just give away a belly button you gotta earn that yeah <laughs> uh i was gonna say the other the other particular piece of art i like is uh uh was just on the page 19 <laughs> Uh, what is that kind of rabbit hole sequence? Alice in Wonderland type thing. Yeah, really love that. I also yeah. I, one of the things I like about this, I, I'm typically not a fan of like scratchy like fill in stuff where like it, you can tell that this wasn't done like 100 percent digitally, but it kind of adds to the scene where you can see a lot of the scratches on the black and the 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 color too, like the watercolor. If you go back to page one page back from there, page 18. 
um, you can see the strokes in the green on the top of the page yeah. there. You know, watercolor is hard to control. And I think that they've done a good job with it. And they've let it kind of show its imperfections in an effective way here. I love the gradients if you go back. Just like the, the blue of the sky on uh, the page we were talking about, page 13, when they're out on the when they're out on this little desert island here, um, I don't know what it is about like the blue background there. It's just so like clean and, and cool to me. The next couple of pages have that as well. I get the feeling that both of these. So so I know Lee Williams is fairly new. Um, I found that about her because she kind of gets retweeted a bit by like Gail Simone and a couple other female writers that I follow. Oh, mm-hmm. Cool. Um, which is kind of how I found out. And she's also writing, like, she's writing a story where, it's like, I think the Blob is in love with Psylocke and there's something going on there. Interesting. Um, Boy. Yeah. I don't know what the whole deal with that is. Um, I'll find out soon enough. But, uh, I don't know how new Felipe Andrade is. So Lee Thompson, just pulling her up in the app, she's done six books, it looks like, is all. Um... And none of them are really high-profile stories. Like, one of them is a, is a tie-in to Secret Empire. So that's something. You can kind of tell that she's in that kind of trial period. Uh-huh. Now, Felipe Andrade has a lot more creative credits. Uh, he worked on Rocket and Groot, it looks like, a little bit, with Scotty Young. Hmm. He worked on Siege, the Old Man Logan solo series. Onslaught. Oh! He did a little bit with Captain Marvel. Yeah, I see that. Oh, he... He worked on the book I was telling you guys about that was uh, Jessica Jones' Purple Daughter. Interesting. Which is, I think, I'm not a big, I'm not a super big fan of Jessica Jones, but I enjoyed the heck out of that book. Oh, and I've read this Captain Marvel issue, which might, like, his name was kind of familiar to me. I, the, the art in this Captain Marvel issue, super weird, very <laughs> different from what we've seen before, and I love it. Hey, pro tip, everybody. If you're trying to find uh, Felipe Andrade, remember to spell Felipe correctly. It's <laughs> F-I-L-I-P-E. Yes. So, I mean, we've talked about the art quite a bit. Lee Williams, or Leah Williams. I'm not sure which it is. I gotta say, she's written one of my favorite lines of dialogue that we've read recently. Uh, Strange takes magic back to the Sanctum Sanctorum, and he shouts out, Wong, she's feral, and has never had pastrami before. It's, <laughs> it's great. It's great, and I love it. What I don't love about this story is, like, Liliana, excuse me, Liliana is a Magic the Gathering card. Iliana, (laughs) like, has a point when on page 11, she's like, hey, you were doing the same thing to me that Belasco did? How dare you? Like, as much, as fun as I like the dialogue, uh, as much as I like the dialogue between Strange and Iliana, and as, as much as I think that rapport is really interesting, there are echoes of some really unhealthy relationship dynamics, and that goes unexplored. The fact is, Strange is not Belasco. Strange is a nicer guy than Belasco, but that's not really a solid enough basis for Ileana to trust this man. Right. You know, so right. like, but I mean, this is a one. This is a one shot. What if story? They got a story that they need to tell really, really quickly. Like, it's something that I'm willing to hand wave. I think it holds the story back from being, like, an all-time great, but it's still pretty good. I think it's a start of what potentially could be all-time yes, I was great. Yes, I was going to agree. I, I think this, this story itself could have benefited a lot 
even if it was stretched out to like three issues. I think a oh, three yeah. issue book I think would have benefited this book quite a bit. I think we would have been able to explore some of that stuff, some more of her training. Um, I think we could have gotten some really interesting stuff. Not to say that this isn't interesting in itself, but I think there's some stuff in here that left us want left me wanting. Yeah. And I think more than anything, the thing that left me wanting was not even was not even kind of getting the satisfaction of seeing magic become sorcerer supreme or sorceress, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I and I kind of wish we would have been able to get that. We got something pretty close, but it's not it's not good enough for me. <laughs> this kind yeah, of this isn't... is sorry. Go ahead. Oh, see, now I'm worried you're going to have a really good point, and I'm just going to say this is like one bite of chocolate cake, and you want <laughs> yes. the whole thing. It's yeah, exactly right. that. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of isn't Ileana's story, despite the fact that it's her name on the cover. Like, mm. because she comes face to face with her abuser. You know, that Belasco, this is an abusive relationship we're talking about. And what happens when the abuser shows up? Ileana reverts back to her child self. Like, page 15, Ileana's holding the soul staff that she manifested, and literally she turns back into a child. And it's up to Strange to rescue her from Belasco. And, like, I don't know that that's necessarily, like... I, I, it's unsatisfying, but I'm not going to say that it's problematic, because I don't think it is. Um, first of all, it actually does look like Ileana strikes back at Belasco and is the one who, who like, kills him, but that moment doesn't really play as a moment of heroism, and this is the one area where I think the, the storytelling, the art, kind of fails us, because it's really muddy. If you're not really, like, actually reading the text and marrying it with the image, and actually, you almost have to ignore the images when you're reading the text, it's kind of hard to tell that Ileana is the one who who strikes the blow against Belasco at the end. I don't know, I'm almost taking it back. It's 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 maybe a little bit shoppily executed there, but this is Ileana. I get... I'm going to cut this whole thing. I hate it. We're going to go back to the chocolate cake thing. You know, I was actually going to point that out, because you, you were talking to about her, you know, kind of turning into a child. Uh-huh. And I like that, you know, when she kind of gives the death blow to Pelasco, it, it it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Gamora in uh, Infinity War. When she oh, finally When she finally kills, or well, not finally, when she thinks she's killed Thanos and she has this moment of like, I've become the thing I hate, but also I killed the only father figure I've ever had. But also, am I any better than him? And am I a good person? And she kind of has that moment in you know in four four panels. Uh, you know, you see her kind of stabbing him. Not that you don't see him getting stabbed, but then like you get that bit of her falling to her knees and like the no 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 please no I thought I'd finally and then the horns and, show up. Yes, and I was particular. I like that. I missed those a little bit. Um, I had to like take a, t- a step back because I was just kind of. I was in the moment, but not so in the moment I was paying attention to every panel. Um, I'm kind of changing my opinion really rapidly on this. Like, there's a lot going on here. This is this is even better, I think, than I was thinking it was when we got into it. <laughs> it's it's good. Like I you know, just basing it off of this one book, I think as a as a writer, Lee Williams could she's she's writing a lot of emotion and a lot of stuff and not a whole lot of like text and that is also you know a testament to Felipe's artwork. There's a lot. There's a lot of really good synergy between like artist and writer here. That's what I'm yeah. trying to say. Hmm. I do think some of the elements of the strange Ileana dynamic are like not great, but uh-huh. I think 
that's not something... Mean, heck, I think two issues would have been enough for this story. I, three would have been great. <laughs> the, there's so much story in here that it could have been spread out over two issues. Since they didn't have two issues, I'm willing to forgive it, I think, for, for yeah. where it's a little bit not as good as I want it to be. Where it kind of takes some shortcuts. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really positive on this book. And here's the thing. Part of the reason why I suggested this book... One, it's a couple of new writers and artists, and we were, and I thought it was a, a nice little contrast to reading about some really well-known, well-established writers and artists. Mm. But also, I really like magic, and I really like, because of the podcast, I really like Doctor Strange now, and I kind of just want more books with them in it. I'm, you know, the, yeah. I like reading her like Wikipedia bio and just what I've seen of her in, you know, the few X titles that I've read. She's a cool character. And yeah. like and a cool design too. Like you think about her like I'm thinking of like Chris Bacallo art in uh All New X-Men. And no, it's not All New X-Men, excuse me. It's I think it's just X-Men. Whatever was running opposite of like Wolverine and the X-Men cuz she teams up I with it was uncanny. um maybe it is Uncanny X-Men. Whatever but, whatever yeah, um it... revolutionary Cyclops is on cuz she she's on his side, right? And she's she's got a cool She's got a cool design, and it, her like sword is wicked rad. Actually, that's so. that's one of the things too, because that's the magic I'm most familiar with. the The soul staff was really kind of reminiscent of the design that she has in that. Yeah. And in, in her costume and that, yeah. I like it. I want more more Ileana, and I want more Doctor Strange, and more yeah. from the this, these writers and artists. Like I want to see other. Yeah, uh, apparently other she's work. a pretty big fan of X Men, and she's writing some X Men stuff. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, uh, I like magic a lot. The the magic miniseries, which details her time with Belasco, is really good. Inferno is kind of a slog, but the <laughs> Ileana stuff in it is amazing. It's, it's so good. And then there's this. This story is really good. That's like three magic stories that I've read, and they're great. So I, I guess I'm a fan. Would you, you say go. that, you know, if you were to take all of these books together, you'd be, that'd be Magic the Gathering? Man, okay, this podcast is canceled. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. Although you're fired and John No, I will take the server wherever all these are stored and throw it into a volcano. <laughs> and then myself after them. <laughs> and you, Stephen, are cursed to roam the earth as the only the only living uh, uh, witness to this horrible, horrible mess we've created this crime oh, against the english language <laughs> i was gonna say against humor but no mostly i'm upset that i like it was right there and <laughs> john you should know by now that if i ever start a sentence with so you, you say what you're saying is steven yeah yeah that's yeah. you're just putting the ball on the tee and uh yeah yeah my yeah. team at work has figured this out every time i start saying <laughs> would you say it's like oh they no know. oh no here they it comes what's happening yeah, so the title of this episode is definitely going to be Magic the Gathering. <laughs> which is a great title for the episode where we talk about Dark Phoenix Saga. I'm very, I'm very happy about that. I think it's time that we start our <laughs> ranking. Yeah. This is tough. We got so much, we, we covered so much ground today. Yeah. But we gotta, yeah. we gotta get to this. I would like to humbly start this proposal. With the uh, of this gathering of of the superhuman registration podcast, he's gonna lowball us, Stephen. <laughs> Be strong. Uh, I I, I want to put this. We're talking below... Dark Phoenix Saga, right? Yeah, sorry, sorry, Dark Phoenix Saga. My bad. Yeah. I I went all in and did not elaborate. Uh, my initial gut reaction was to put this like above Wolverine, but the more I'm looking at the books here, I'm 
kind of right below Runaways. I'm actually below Beta Ray Bill. I'm I'm below Coming of Galactus. So, so I I say a lot closer than I. Yeah, expected. me too. I did not expect it to be I such a wide gap. I thought you were gap. gonna go much higher. Well, I I understand um, that you know putting it in the top ten based on everyone's reaction is just not possible. If it were a you know X Men top ten, obviously this would be number one. Like there's just no question. So I'm looking at the list. And there's a part of me that wants to try to put Dark Phoenix in the top ten, but I'm kind of with John. I can't put it above the coming of Galactus. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys a secret. I totally would have accepted this at number ten. I think I think Coming of Galactus is better. That's what I was gonna say. It's a hard contender. See, I would I would, I think I like Dark Phoenix better than Coming of of Galactus, but I but I understand that that may be that I'm an I'm an X Men kid over Fantastic Four. And Avengers and everyone else, so I will concede and put it at uh, at uh, what would that be twelve? Just under know. coming of Galactus. I don't know because I'm looking at this list and I'm like, I kind of like this better than Marvels. I don't know. Do I like it better than Marvels? Because what I like about Dark Phoenix Saga is really the last issue, mm-hmm. the Cyclops stuff all throughout it, especially the way he butts heads with Professor X, which we didn't really get into. Oh, and then Professor X winds up being right at the end, and I hate that. Okay, yeah, nope, this goes below Coming of Galactus. I think I just have a hard problem putting this above Beta Ray Bill, because I love that book, and I love the character. Uh, what was the name of his ship? Uh, the Scuttlebutt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scuttlebutt. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not. I will never forget. <laughs> I was going to say. But I can totally concede that that's me being in a, in a one-sided relationship with Beta Ray Bill. Yeah, and I, you know, when it comes to Simonson Thor, for me, like, there's so much really good stuff that we haven't read yet. The Beta Ray, B, the Beta Ray Bill stuff is actually, compared to the rest of Simonson Thor, not that good. Um, so... So we're thinking then 12, right below coming of Galactus and above... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going with that just to spite Charlie X. Charlie <laughs> Seriously, Chuck Xavier is actually kind of the worst. I didn't oh. used to think that, and now I do. Yeah, when you get older, you kind of realize he's kind of a he's, douche. He's kind of the worst. Not Patrick Stewart, yeah. though. Let's be clear. <laughs> I, I really... One of these days, we're going to read um, Extreme X-Men, where Wolverine is gay, and Charles Xavier is ahead, and Nightcrawler is a small child, and they have to jump through dimensions to kill... Other Chuck X's. Oh, gosh. Wow. That sounds like some mid-2000s Marvel comics. Yeah. No, that's like 2010s. (laughs) Oh, is it really? Yeah. Dang. Still bonkers. Wolverine is gay, and he had a thing for Hercules. Oh, I mean, there's a pretty good argument that Wolverine's at least by in in mainstream Marvel continuity. Definitely has a thing for Nightcrawler. (laughs) Wolverine could have whatever he wants, so... Mm -hmm. I mean, are you going to tell him no? No! (laughs) All right, so Dark Phoenix comes in at number 12 on our list, which is a pretty good showing for it. Now, okay, I'm really curious about the ranking for What If Magic. Also, can I just say one thing real fast? Yeah, go ahead. I'm a little sad that top 10s are popular because our like top 15 books are really good. Yeah. Yeah, they're really good. We could start a new yeah. thing and have to our top 15 <laughs> be the thing. I would recommend any of these, like... 15 books to anybody. I mean, yeah. I would take yeah. it down to almost the top 20 as being, like, just solid. Yes. Karnak's a hard book to give to a first-time reader, though. 
A little bit. I mean, so is Secret Wars. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. let's talk magic. I would put magic just under Karnak. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I actually wondered if we were going to have the conversation, is is what if magic better or worse than the never-ending struggle? It always comes down to that Anytime we're around it. <laughs> it kind of does, doesn't it? <laughs> they're both, I mean, they're both kind of one-shots, right? They're both right? kind of interesting takes on trauma. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, the never-ending struggle is about suicidality, and what if magic is about abuse in a weird way? Not even in a weird way, it just is. Regaining that control. Yeah. Yeah. By yeah. stabbing your abuser in the chest with the staff that you made from your own soul and magic. Or getting help at the hospital. <laughs> sure. Right. Oh, here's where here's where magic stands out. I like the art better because I mean, the art in Never Any Struggle was fine, but nothing particularly stand out to me. But also, I'm left wanting more in a good way, not like I'm unfulfilled, but I'm excited about what could come next. Which I think is a hallmark of a good what if story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what Never Any Struggle like wraps up nicely, and so that's also something in its favor. But for me personally, I'm I'm voting just above. Yeah. Okay. Right there. But John, do they go to do they go watch Hamilton? In <laughs> Look. Okay. That's an unfair. That's an unfair thing. That's you know. It's fine. You will never be satisfied. <laughs> just you wait. <laughs> You're young, scrappy, and hungry, just like a country. <laughs> we we already titled one of our episodes after a Hamilton song. Yeah, I know, and we're not naming this one the Phoenix Penis. <laughs> <laughs> so get it out of your head, Stephen. <laughs> Oh, that gosh. makes me sad. <laughs> that was that I I can't own that. That was also from Jay and Miles, by the way. Ah, uh, yeah, jerk. Is this just the Jay and Miles like? Uh, this fan is a Jay podcast? and Miles appreciation podcast. They're really yes. thorough and they're really passionate <laughs> about it. They're very good. Yeah, so it's it's tough to not you know like tip your cap to the. You know, the I pros. would be real good at a Spider-Man podcast if we just sat down and read 130 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although, where do you want to put the story? You know, I'm kind of right there with uh, with John. I I also have an uh, an internal struggle of whenever we put anything close to the never ending struggle. Mm-hmm. Pun actually not intended. Um, but I, you know, I do have to agree with John. I think the art in this one stands out. It's really well done. Um, it's unique. With yeah. also, you know. Making reminding us of Klaus Janssen art and and whoever else you know. Yeah, I still, really, still... really well drawn pair of ripped jeans. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm comfortable putting it below Karnak. What about you, Stephen? There's a part of me that wants to put this a little bit lower. Specifically, I want to put it underneath Squirrel Power. That's the wrong. I really like that book. That's the wrong part. I love Squirrel Power too, but when it comes down to arts and uh, art and good stories over jokes, I got to pick art and good story. I think the reason that I I'm, I'm ultimately going to agree with you guys because I think the fact that all three of us liked it tells me that there's something about this story that makes it more accessible to a wider range because i one of the things that i like about squirrel power in particular is that it is a good all ages story yeah but it's an all ages story that i remember kind of rubbed all the wrong way in particular and i don't think any of us were were really put off by magic except for again some of the weird stuff with the relationship between iliana and strange but like yeah i think i think yeah, let's put it in just beneath Karnak at, at number 18. I think part of why why I'm not really all that bothered by the relationship 
is because it gets called out. True. You're, you, that's a very good point. He lets her walk away, too, and explains where he's coming from. Because it is, it is the same... You know, it's it's the same. It, well, I don't want to say it's the same abuse because one is abuse and one is like a mentor mentee relationship. But yeah. they're doing the same thing, like you said, and the, it's just the flavor is different. But when you yeah. see, he says, "No, you're free to walk out. Here's what here's what this is all about. Here's what I want to do." You know, that's where the, the difference comes. Yeah, in. and I do like that. She, you know, she's like, "You're doing the same thing he's doing," and he's like, "You know, I'm sorry. I did not. I didn't consider that." Yeah, and it mm-hmm. it kind of goes to show that. You know, even though he is Sorcerer Supreme, Stephen Strange is still not a perfect person. That's actually a really good moment of characterization in, like, two panels. I'm also relieved that Stephen didn't, like, die. Like, like she had to fill his shoes because he oh, had died I was, or something. If this was, like, a, an episode, I way would have been on the edge of my seat. I Yeah. yeah. I, was have, I was expecting him to die. And it's kind of, like, a nice little twist where, like, he just sinks into the sand and he's like... You're only talking because I'm letting you talk. And I was like, oh, this guy's just a chump. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a good book. It really is. Should we, like, like bold the uh, entry into the list of, like, the one time we all were unanimous? Like, <laughs> it, has this happened before um, except for Spider-Man? You know what? I don't know. I think this... I mean, it's been unanimous before, I'm sure. But it's going to be for something like, uh, I don't know, Sweet Christmas... <laughs> like one of the more forgettable stories on the list. Yes, that's fair. Uh, yeah, okay. no, like this was a good, good story, and I like I was impressed by it and surprised, and I like being surprised because that doesn't happen very often anymore. Right, <laughs> I was a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we live in an age where everything's being remade and redone, and it's still profitable, so it's going to keep happening. I'm looking at yeah, you, uh, Aladdin and Lion King. It makes me so seriously, angry. Seriously, the so day angry. that we're recording this is the day that they released the clip of Will Smith singing Prince Ali, and it's just the blandest, it's sad. Do your it's own like, thing or don't do anything at all. It, wow, this just... high school production of Aladdin looks really good. I oh. wonder how they landed Will Smith. <laughs> it kills me because with all this technology and talent... And all you'd have, you just have him shuffling and then like riding in like a couple ostriches and like that's it. I think, I think, uh, Dan Olsen, uh, from like, uh. Oh, Foldable Human. Yeah. Well, I think, I think his show is like called like Folding Thoughts or something like that. Yep. Um, but he says, he says, you know, a president dwelling on the fact that they kept a series of lines that were jokes that hinged on Williams's funny voices genie shape-shifting into character into funny characters to trick the crowd into getting hyped and they just left them in flat Ugh. and straight yep it was and real it, bad Ugh. it's sad this is mm-hmm. why i watch trailers <laughs> i i am so like i watched the lion king trailer you know that's i'm actually excited for that one but that's because i have an extreme bias for the lion king Ugh. well you know what the movie you're going to see, you've seen already. And this isn't live action. It's friggin' animated again. And it's I have just... always said that. It's, it bugs me that they call it live action. Unless they have, like, one person, like, walk across the savannah. This is not. <laughs> yeah, because there's no way that they were like, all right, let's bring the hyenas in and film them in front of this green screen. Or let's go out to the Serengeti and hope that we get, you know, groups of animals um, singing. <laughs> just, but, oh, you know, so Childish mad. Gambino with Simba. That's the a, thing, too. I love the cast. Everyone in the cast. I'm like, yes, great. But, like, James Earl Jones doing it again. 
because who I was going to replace him? Who was going to replace uh, him? Nobody. Terry Crews? Uh, Will no. Smith? No. Jim Carrey? Jared Leto? No. He replaces everybody. Ugh. <laughs> that's a good point, though. <laughs> oh, I'm just so mad. I'm just so mad. All right, well, I think that's going to have to wrap up our discussion of Disney characters for the moment. Uh, we got to... So angry. <laughs> just can't wait to be rained. <laughs> so... I'm even more This angry. is... I'm going to be a mighty list with all these books in there. Well, I've never seen a Spider-Man book by Straczynski. Oh, crap. Who was the author on that crappy one? Straczynski. Get higher than there. Dang it. Dang it. Just throw it all out. In the volcano. Okay. Seppuku ourselves out of this Guys, world. I want to talk about the stories we're going to read next. If you don't let me do that, I am going to throw everything into a volcano. Okay. Hey, Dante. <laughs> Okay, so for our next episode, well, our next episode that goes up after this one is is likely going to be a fill-in because we're, you know, John, wish him well. He's going to be dealing with being a new dad to twins. We're expecting, as a podcast, <laughs> we're expecting that he's going to be two new, Two oh, new wait. fans. Yeah, so good luck with that. For our reading, for the next time that we record an episode, we are going to be reading... The 2011 Moon Knight series by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev. Alex Maleev. I couldn't see his first name from the cover or from the, the front. Ah. And Marvel Unlimited has this listed as the 2010 Moon Knight series. I don't understand it. Anyway, Moon Knight issues numbers issue numbers one through seven. We are also going to be reading the Extremis arc of Iron Man, which is. Iron Man 2004, again, it's listed as 2004, but I think the first issue was in 2005, whatever, uh, issues one through six. So we've got two returning writers. we got Bendis again and Warren Ellis again. So that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to having that discussion with you guys. Yes. And I think, I think that's got to do it. For, for tonight. We've been, we've been recording for about two hours. Yeah. I'm tired. Podcast. And I'm getting cranky because we started talking about Disney live action remakes. I'm so so... <laughs> Oh, and then they also released a trailer for the Maleficent sequel. Oh, good. Please pile on more crap onto my dunghill. You know, mm-hmm. it makes you feel any better, John. It doesn't. They also came out with a trailer for the animated version of Batman Hush. Oh, really? Well, I mean, do you not like the DC animated I stuff? do, but I'm worried that it's going to be, like, bad. I mean, it's Hush. Like, it's, it's it's fine. But I liked... <laughs> Hush was my, like, you know, comic, like, like gateway drug. And it gets so much better. It's a good survey course of Batman adventures, I think, is, you know... Right, Steven? <laughs> so, our podcast is over. <laughs> I'll stop recording. <laughs>